morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here, and we are continuing along in our series in the book of Nehemiah, so I want to invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter 10, or go ahead and look up on the screen. And as a, an act of worship, as a sign of reverence, if I could ask everyone to please stand for the reading of his word. The passage will be in Nehemiah chapter 10, starting with verse 28, and I'll be reading to verse 31, even though the message generally will cover the entire chapter, but for our reading, it'll be 10 starting verse 28 to 31, and this is God's word for us. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have acknowledged an understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, servant of God, and to observe all and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. And this is God's word for us. Please uh, take your seats. And so we've been looking at the, the story of Nehemiah, and it's a story about how God is not about rebuilding a wall, but he's about rebuilding a people. And we're trying to consider here, what does God uh, want us to learn in terms of how he reconciles us and builds us up to be the church, to be his people? What does that look like? How are we supposed to feel? What are we supposed to do in terms of living this out as a, a people of God in the gospel of Jesus? And in the recent chapters that we've been looking at here on Sundays, we've seen that there was some sort of revival with the people of God. They rebuilt the wall. They're trying to rebuild the city. They get people into the city. They had a revival service in which people were convicted of their sins. There was a Bible study of about six hours where they were convicted of their sins again. And they had a, a long prayer in chapter 9 confessing their relationship, confessing their sins, confessing their faith. And now in chapter 10, what we have here is basically... A renewal. And it's similar to when husband and wife, sometimes on their 20th, 5th, or 50th anniversary, they come together and they renew their marital vows. It's not as if they're married again, but they just want to be reminded of their love and their commitment and faith in one another. And in some ways, that's what we have in chapter 10. It's a covenant renewal ceremony where the people of God come and they want to remind themselves and declare once again, we are the people of God. Our faith and our confidence and trust is in God, and so we're going to live this out. And the major construct or organization or this sort of relationship between God and his people is what we call a covenant, a contractual relationship. It's actually the center of the entire Bible in terms of understanding God and his people. It's the center and the foundation of our relationship with him is a covenant. And so when you read chapter 10, it sort of reads, as it understandably is, very ancient, it's like, we don't do this today as modern people. What in the world is a covenant? This seems archaic. It just seems old-fashioned. But what I'm going to try to argue here is that this relationship is actually eternal, and it's timeless, and it's completely relevant and applicable for you and I here today as modern people. In fact, the scholar Christopher Wright has said this about the covenant. He says, a covenant is a model or an example for other cases where a basic principle remains unchanged though details may differ. 
In other words, the covenant themes are relevant for today as it was back then. The covenant relates to all issues of life. For example, it relates to the stability and and the sanctity of marriage. It relates to your sexual ethic. It relates to employment conditions and how you treat your boss and employees. It relates to human and animal rights. It relates to environment and green issues. It even speaks into your money and wealth management. Everything that we're all concerned, and even these hot-button issues that many of us in our culture relate to. Friends, what I'm trying to say is this. In chapter 10, there's a teaching on the covenant that's just as much for our century as it was for people back then. Now, we can't address every issue here today, but we'll consider three major areas that Nehemiah begins with in verses 28 to 31. In other words, how does this ancient covenant relate and inform our relationship for modern people as a restored and rebuilt people of God? And one thing to note is this. We're not going to go into the beginning verses where it lists all the people who signed this covenant contract, but it's at least one implication about those names. It means that this covenant, these obligations, are something that individuals commit to, but also the church commits to. It's both individual, but also communal. That's why you have names there. Otherwise, if it wasn't about individual commitment, you and God, then you don't need to list these names there. Just say, the people of God, it was the church, Israelites. But they list the actual names to tell us this covenant is both an individual personal commitment, but it's also a church commitment, because that's why the names are given together. And some of these names are just names of families. And so it's a personal commitment, but it's also a church commitment of how to live out the relevance of an ancient covenant, but for modern people today. And these are three issues that we'll touch base base upon that are really just listed out there for you in 30 to 31. One, it says, be cautious of who you marry. Be careful who you marry. Secondly, be careful with your Sundays, how you use your Sundays, how you think about it. And then thirdly, be deeply compassionate and caring for the poor. So how does this relate for issues today? It says, be careful who you marry. Secondly, be careful how you take care of Sundays and prioritize your time. And then thirdly, be deeply compassionate and caring to the poor. And so let's touch base and look at these three areas. First, it says there in verse 30, be cautious of who you marry. Now, it sounds confusing, even racist, if not just elitist. It reads as if God condemns interracial marriage. It says there, we will not give our daughters to peoples of the lands and take their daughters for our sons. Now, it seems very insensitive. It seems very elitist, doesn't it? It seems sort of uh, racist. It says, well, we're not going to let our daughters marry this type of people, and we're not going to take those daughters for our sons. You know, there's no interracial marriage. There's no mixed marriages. But in fact, that verse has nothing to do with marriage on some level, because the issue there isn't about marriage. It's about worship. It's not about mixing ethnicities and nationalities. It's about mixing religions. And the reason was because back then in the ancient Near East, when two people got married, they immediately shared their religions and their gods with one another. Every god has a place in their new home with husband and wife. For other religions that were not Christian, it was completely normal to actually accept every god because they were polytheistic. You could worship anyone. It didn't really matter. But for Christianity, it wasn't allowed. It was impossible just to have other gods in your household and let your worship be dictated by a non-Christian god. The covenant meant that God was to be worshipped alone and even commands, I am the true God. There's only one and true God. So when you marry, what was at issue here was not just 
a mixture of ethnicity. That wasn't the point, but it was a mixture of religiosity. In other words, verse 30 was a warning about syncretistic worship, about copying out, about blending your worship with the things of the world, about uh, mixing up the message of the gospel, about uh, this sort of pluralistic, polytheistic, uh, postmodern approach to say every religion actually could blend with one another, everyone is a little bit right. And then you water down the message, you water down your life, and it wasn't really a holy life that was dictated by a holy God. You see this kind of warning in the Bible throughout the Old Testament. And you sort of, if you take it in the worst case, read it as a racist message, which completely isn't the issue, but it's really about a mixture of religions. So Joshua warns against mixed marriages because it corrupts the people of Israel and their worship. That's in Joshua 23. Solomon's marriage to other women contaminated worship and was so bad but that his marriage to other people and other religions and nations was so bad that it actually led to the division of the kingdom. That's in 1 Kings 11. It's alluded to later on in Nehemiah 13. So the issue here, in other words, friends, was the purity of the faith and the holiness of the people. It wasn't, in other words, ethnic issues. It was ethical issues. It wasn't national issues. It was spiritual issues. I mean, perhaps the greatest example of affirming this reality was this wonderful person named Ruth in the book of Ruth. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. She wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't Jewish. She was a Moabite, but she was converted to Christianity. She married a Jewish man in Boaz, and their eventual child led to the birth of Jesus. So she was somebody who was engrafted in. So the Bible actually affirms diversity. It affirms uh, the beauty of different nationalities and ethnicities, but what it wants to be careful about is mixing religions in order to mix your spiritualities, because then you'll taint the message, you'll taint your life, and the heart of this message in verse 30 is not about racism, but in reality, the heart of the issue was missions. It wants the people to go out in holiness to proclaim the gospel. And it says, be careful who you marry, because it's saying you don't want to mix your religions with one another. Friends, this is how it speaks directly into our culture here today. Now, the easiest application is what you look at later on in Corinthians when Paul talks about marrying in the Lord. But we're not going to talk about just marrying other Christians, even though that's so vitally important, but that could be a message for another time. But the reason this speaks into our world today is because one of the challenges facing the church today that has been for some time is what they call religious pluralism. Now, pluralism means there's a plurality of religions. And what that basically means, and if you ever talk to non-Christians, they imbibe this, they embrace this. They're saying Christianity is too old-fashioned, is too archaic, too oppressive, too self-righteous, you guys are so prideful, you guys are hypocrites. And so they say, actually, every religion, we should be tolerant and accept every religion. We're all people, we all have an element of truth, and every religion has some truth in it. So let's be loving and tolerant and accept all kinds of religions, because every religion actually has a relevance to it and is an element of truth in it. That's religious pluralism. It's the idea that all religions, all philosophies, all worldviews are innately valid. They have some truth in it. You know, it's the illustration that if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this, the idea that all rivers, they lead up to the same peak of the mountain, the same truth. Or the more common one is that every religion is like a blind man who touches an elephant, but it's all touching the same elephant, which means that everyone has some part of the truth. 
that's sort of the idea of religious pluralism. William Blake, the English poet, has once said in uh, one of his writings, all religions are one. So it's very common. Just talk to somebody out there in the world, and then if they're honest with it, they'll say, well, every religion, every worldview, everybody has an element of truth. But here's the thing, friends. We can't go into depth of this, but this is just what I want to offer you as a way to be engaged non-Christians and to love them and to hear them out and to be able to di dialogue with them if they hold to this sort of position. Now, one of the objections that people give Christianity uh, in terms of religious pluralism is that Christians are too dogmatic, no, too prideful. Now, how can you say that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life? That's too dogmatic, too doctrinal. Accept everyone. Otherwise, it leads to oppression and it leads to an abuse of power. But you have to think about this. Even if you're an atheist and you say there is no God, one of the things you recognize is that's a very dogmatic statement. You're making a strong statement about the doctrine of God. And that doctrine is God doesn't exist. And so even if I say as a Christian, I think the nature of God is that he's omnipotent, he's all-loving, he's perfect, he revealed himself in the Bible, he controls everything, he loves people in perfection. I have a very dogmatic doctrine of God. It's a trinity, but even if an atheist says there is no God, that's a farce, that's a fable, that's something made up, both of us have a very strong view of God. Both of us have a very strong doctrine of God. So if anyone says, Christians, you guys are so dogmatic, there is no God, just realize that even an atheist has a very strong doctrine of God and is just as assertive and just as dogmatic as we are. The second sort of objection that I've received in actual conversations, and you can read about this, is that from the pluralistic point of view, they say Christianity, what they hate about us is that we, we make too many exclusive claims. No, these absolute truth claims. Now, in other words, Christianity says, well, if you want the true joy of life, then you got to accept Jesus as your Savior. The only way to go to heaven, you have all these blessings in heaven, the only way to go there is going to be one route, one river, and that's going to be Jesus Christ. So they're saying it's too, your claims are too exclusive, you know, it's too divisive. But here's the thing, friends, very simply, even to say all religions have an element of truth, that statement is just as exclusive as me saying Jesus is the only way. Because whenever somebody says every uh, religion has an element of truth, it sounds actually very, very tolerant, but it's actually very exclusive because it'll exclude me it, as a Christian. It'll exclude uh, an Orthodox Jew. It'll exclude a Muslim. So somebody who actually thinks they're very tolerant and loving, say, let's accept all religions, that statement is actually just as exclusive as me saying Jesus is the only way in truth. So the point that we're trying to make is this. No religion has absolute truth, and that every religion has part of the truth is just as much an absolute truth claim as anything else. So two things are unavoidable whenever you want to evangelize and persuade people in this pluralistic context. One, everybody's dogmatic. Secondly, everyone has a truth claim. That's unavoidable. But if we go a little bit deeper, this philosopher, Paul Moser, he offers a helpful discussion of religious exclusivism in his book called The Evidence of God. And this is just very simple, and I'm just summarizing one of his points. You can't hold on to this view that every religion has some element of truth, because we have to agree that different religions make contradictory claims. They're irreconcilable. If one is true, then the other is not. So for example, the claims of various religions are just logically inconsistent. 
they can't all be true. For example, Judaism and Hinduism, in their most prominent and common forms, they disagree about their God. They're irreconcilable. These two religions are logically excluding one another. Or Christianity, for example, will come in and say, well, Jesus is God too. That means we automatically exclude Muslims and Judaism and Islam. They both deny this. There can be no logical reconciliation in these basic fundamental cases. So even in the simple example, he's saying you can't be pluralistic. Not every religion can be right because they're irreconcilable on their most basic foundational beliefs. One way he summarizes it is this way. Put simply, all religions, including atheism, all religions, maybe they're all wrong, but all religions can definitely not be all right. And this is the point, friends. This is the world we live in. The point of verse 30 about warning the Israelites about mixed marriages is really warning us about mixing our lives with the world, mixing our lives with different spiritualities. We live in a similar context as the ancient Near Eastern people back then. We live in a pluralistic world. And at the end of the day, the application for us is that we can evangelize, we can persuade people with our lives, with our humility, with our love and our willingness, with listening and respecting other views first, while trying to understand the felt needs and the stories of other people, even if they come from different backgrounds and religions. We can love them as people made in the image of God. We can allow them to feel heard. We could regurgitate their points in a way that they could feel heard and understood. We could do all this and listen well, all the while, never relenting and never letting go of Jesus' own words in John 14, 6, that no one comes to the Father except through me. You know why? Because Christianity, yes, is definitely exclusive. Jesus is the only way. It's radically exclusive, but yet if you someone embraces the gospel, it creates people that should be radically loving and inclusive. That's the message of the gospel, one way to go to heaven. But if you embrace this message of grace and love, it transforms people to have wide-reaching arms to embrace other people. And that's what we learn here in the first warning about the covenant. Be wary of this pluralistic context that you live in. Don't mix spiritualities. But this is the second thing. In verses 31, it also says, be careful with your Sundays. Verse 31 says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Now, we have to apply this to modern people, but at the end of the day, it's a very modern issue. Basically saying, don't let money, don't let work, don't let busyness take pride of place instead of your Sunday worship. Be careful with your Sundays. It's one unique day of the year. It talks about business in verse 31. It talks about making money, and it says, rest and worshiping on the Sabbath are more important. You see, friends, on some level, this challenges one of our culture's most prized possessions. This may challenge and strain and challenge one of your most important commodities in life. You know what that is? Your time. The fourth commandment, if you're growing up in the church, uh, says keep the Sabbath holy. Now, the issue there is about worship, but really it's talking about use everything to glorify God. Use your marriage, use your possessions. But the fourth commandment about the Sabbath is saying, use your time. One day of the week, you come together, you worship as church. You worship as the people of God. And on some level, this is the most the difficult and the hardest application and commandment to apply because we love our time. In Time Magazine in 1997, Bill Gates was once asked, 
Why doesn't he believe in God? And he simply responded by saying, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. He could probably be reading, relaxing, I'm guessing. He's probably going to be working because he could add things to the world. He could be productive. He could make more money. But it's really a matter of perspective. If the most important thing that we'll do in eternity is to fellowship with one another and worship God, then that's going to usurp and take priority over everything. But I think the world, and maybe you and I, we think more like Bill Gates than we like to admit and imagine. This, friends, to say in verse 31, this commandment in 31, friends, to say, honor the Sabbath, be careful how you use your time, be careful of your Sundays, it wasn't a new commandment. See, even we think sometimes that the Israelites were very religious, but they had just as many issues about honoring the Sabbath as you and I did. It was just as hard for them. Otherwise, verse 31 wouldn't be in the passage. It wasn't a new commandment. It was first given in Genesis 2, 22 to 23 to Adam in the creation mandate. Before Genesis 2, 2 to 3, before sin entered the world. It was given to the people of Israel again in Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15. It was mentioned again in Exodus 16, verses 23. But here's the interesting, friends, interesting thing about this commandment. It's peppered throughout the Old Testament, like I cited, but when it was finally made official, it was codified. In the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down with the two tablets. It is finally written into a contract. That comes to us in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. When it talks about this commandment of honoring your Sundays, it says, remember the Sabbath day. See, everywhere else it says, keep it holy, keep it holy. Don't, don't, buy, don't buy things from people who are trying to sell. Don't sell your things to make money. But when it finally became official, ratified and codified, in verse, verses 8 to 11, Exodus 20, the commandment literally says, remember the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? Because I think the Bible understands the human condition. And the Bible is basically saying we're forgetful people. We actually need to be reminded that Sunday is God's and it's not ours. But if you're really honest, if you've grown up in the church, at least in my experience, I don't know many people who actually, even if you're a non-believer, I don't know many people who forget that Sunday is actually the religious day, the church day. None of you would actually forget Sunday is a day to worship. So when it says remember, it's speaking to people who forget, but I think it's more speaking to people who neglect. It's not about forgetting that Sunday is church day or that it's the Lord's day. It's actually more that we neglect Sunday and its implications for us. Because if you've grown up in the church, you know that you never forget Sunday, you just neglect Sunday. And that's what verse 31 is trying to get at. I read an interesting story years ago about a, a local drugstore in Evanston, Illinois in 1875. And back then, he had the local churches, it was sort of Bible Beltway. Uh, these local churches were trying to pass these uh, county ordinances and blue light laws uh, because they're saying this local drugstore was desecrating the Lord's Day because they were conducting business and they were serving ice cream sodas on Sunday. And so they passed this ordinance that said, uh, you can no longer make drinks with carbonated water. And so they thought this would address the issue with this local ice cream store. But the clerk and the owner of that store came up with a different idea. He says, okay, I can't make any sort of drinks with carbonated water, so I'm going to take uh, something else, and I'm going to use ice cream and syrup instead. And then you have the invention of what we call the ice cream sundae, because it was, at that point, an ice cream that you'd only eat and able to order on Sunday as a reminder to say, 
this day is different. Now, I don't know if it's actually true. You could Google it. And everyone talks about the story, and there's so many details. I think it's pretty along the same factual lines. But the point is this. Everybody knows there's a Sunday. Everybody knows that it's the church day. Everybody knows it's the day that people and Christians go to church. But verse 31 is saying, remember the Sabbath, because it's not about forgetting it, it's about neglecting it. You may be missing the point. It's not at the end of the day about carbonated water and about actually ice cream and syrup. It's a way to rest and to fellowship and to worship, to prioritize and say that God doesn't just care about my resources and my possessions. He cares about the way I use my time on Sundays. You see, friends, on some level, this commandment, it was easier to apply at one point during Israel's wilderness wandering. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So it's easy for them to say, on the seventh day, we'll worship and rest. It's because as they're wandering in the wilderness, there wasn't an economy. There wasn't vacations. There wasn't business. There wasn't things to sell. There wasn't a market. But once the Israelites entered the promised land in the land of Canaan, life was a little bit different. So the Sabbath commandment had to be applied in a fresh way. And you see this throughout the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament. This commandment, honor the time in Sabbath, be careful of your Sundays, was something that was reminded and given to the people of God over and over again. In the 8th century BC, Amos the prophet gave a sharp rebuke to keep the Sabbath because people were too materialistic and they exploited the poor by selling things on the day that was holy, Amos 8.5. Isaiah later on taught that the Sabbath was supposed to be an encouragement, not something that's a drain. Isaiah is saying this Sabbath time is supposed to be a blessed time, a God-pleasing time, a joyful time. And then the prophet Jeremiah, he gave a serious warning to his people in the next century saying, stop buying and selling stuff just to make a profit, something that's very similar again. And then later after that, Ezekiel challenged the people to see the Sabbath as a special sign, saying that God and his people had this unique ability to be together in covenant. And going to church was a way to witness to the world around them. So you have the same commandment that was applied in a fresh new way through every generation and prophet in the Old Testament. And I would argue that in some ways, this commandment to keep the Sabbath should be applied in a fresh new way, even in our context today. Never before seen. Well, hi, how is that? You recognize that obviously COVID has changed things and this lockdown has changed things in the, the landscape of, of church and ministry. I don't know how it's permanently going to change things. Maybe it's temporary. You could read articles that COVID is going to change a lot of things in this economy, in this world, especially how the corporate world works and how labor wages work and how supply and chain management works. And it also says that it changed the landscape of how employees want to work because now everybody wants to work from home. In some ways, it also may have changed worship on Sundays as well. One thing that we noticed, at least that's pretty simple, is that it made, in some ways, people much more consumeristic. Do you realize, and I mentioned this before, that now actually when you're locked down at home and that you have 10 services at the finger point and the press of a button, you could visit 10 different messages in one Sunday. And it feeds into our consumeristic culture that we could just pick the ones that we like most. And it makes it, people, makes it, it, makes it such that people are not as committed to the local church. It makes it easier actually to stay home. It makes it easier just to kind of indulge in our personal preferences and not think about the greater mission of the church. The other thing I realized that churches and pastors are struggling with, which I also think is very understandable, is that being locked down at home in live stream, which is perfectly fine, we offer it here at this church, but the challenge there, it also makes people very comfortable. 
You know, what if you could just wake up and you could just get your cereal and watch your service at home and you don't actually have to drive and put on your Sunday's clothes and go, you know, that's a lot more work. So it made people a lot easier, made them a lot easier for them to just stay home because comfort is a really big idol of our culture. Just click on the YouTube live chat and then you could engage in worship. You know, so these are the things that we have to apply that at the end of the day, we could be prayerful, you could be slow, you could be thoughtful, but in some ways that New Life Presbyterian, our vision and goal in some ways would always be to get people in person to worshiping with each other because we believe that's the application of verse 31. The other applications are things we struggle with as we all do. Now, don't work on Sundays if you don't have to. Now, don't choose kids' activities over Sunday worship if you don't have to. There's all kinds of applications, but the new ones that have to be applied in a fresh way are going to be the things and the spiritual realities that COVID had brought out, and so we could prayerfully work through this. And that's the second thing that this covenant could be applied for modern people today. This is what it's trying to tell us, friends. That model that many of us have, all work and no play, that's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for spiritual, physical, and family decay and breakdown. Because in Genesis 2, when it says, rest on the Sabbath day, Sabbath day, just like God, that commandment in Genesis 2 was given before sin entered the world. Do you know what that tells us? It's saying this, just as much as food and drink are necessary for your human flourishing, just as much as relationships and community are necessary for your human flourishing, the ability to rest and work in its proper proportions is also necessary for human flourishing. In other words, on the negative side, if you never eat and you begin to starve, if you never drink and you begin to dehydrate, if you never have community and you're always isolating yourself and there's mental health issues, all those things have a negative impact upon your life. Just as much, if you work too much and don't have a healthy understanding of the Sabbath and these proper proportions of work and rest, if you never apply and live that out, that will have just as much a deep impact a negative impact on your human life and flourishing. The ability for Americans like you and me to be able to rest well may be one of the challenges that we'll face in this world, a world that's all about the clock and time and proficiency and efficiency. And one of the applications of the gospel is to say, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And it means that Jesus enters into the Sabbath rest. He did what we couldn't do. Now we can rest in him. We could find our sense of purpose and identity in him because he is someone who has died for us and loved us. He's just someone that gives us the ability to enjoy our work, but someone who also lets us enjoy our rest. And if you don't have that balance right, if you're not able to actually find that rhythm, then it's going to be a detriment to your spiritual life. But this is our last point, friends. It tells us in this ancient covenant for modern people to be compassionate to the poor to be generous with your stuff more broadly. Read with me verse 31 again. It says, We will forego the crops forego the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. And basically it's saying, because it's an agricultural context, you know, on the seventh year, for whatever land you have, you know, you're not going to harvest it. You know, just let it rest. And there's practical reasons. I'm not a farmer, but I read, on the seventh year, you need the soil to actually rest. You need your animals to actually rest. That's why the covenant has issues about animal rights as well. But you need to let the land rest, let it become fertile, so that when you harvest it for the next six years, it will be very plentiful. So there's a, a farming reason as to why they did this, but there's much more of a deeper spiritual reason. 
the seventh year you rested from your land because it was an act of faith to say, I'm going to trust in God for the seventh year to provide for all my, all my needs. It also is a message to the world and a reminder to ourselves. In the seventh year, you don't farm the land. You have to listen to the way God wants to farm it. Do you know why? Because it's saying, God owns the land, but we just manage it as his tenant. Leviticus 25.23 says this, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. That's God talking. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Some people, some translations translate sojourners as tenants. And this is what it means on the modern-day application. Just as much as the land for the farmer wasn't the farmer's, but it was God's, it implies everything you own. Everything you own is modern people. Your education, your houses, your timeshares, your possessions. On the most basic level, God is the owner of everything that you have, and he's saying, I'm just going to let you manage it on my behalf. In some ways, you're a manager more so than you are an owner. And if you think from that framework, then it makes you deeply generous and radically generous people. Now, we didn't read the later part of chapter 10, but it also goes into wealth management and taking care of people in your community and talks about taxes, talks about tithing. One of the things about tithing is that we tend to think, if you've grown up in the church, I own 100% of my money, now I have to give 10% away. I think that's actually true. But what this is trying to tell us in some level is a different perspective. It's not saying you own 100%, give 10% away. It's basically saying God owns 100% and he gives you 90. And so he'll keep 10 for himself. In the same way, he owns the land. He owns everything that you have. And that makes us and should make us radically generous because we actually deserve nothing. We own nothing. But in the gospel of Jesus, he has given us everything. Jerry Bridges says there are basically three attitudes when it comes to your stuff and your material possessions. Three attitudes. One attitude is, what's yours is mine, I'm going to take it. That's a thief. A second attitude is, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. That's basically greed and selfishness. The third way says, what's mine is God's, therefore I'm going to share it. And that's going to be the gospel way. It helps us to be generous. It helps us to be radically different. Because even in the seventh year, on the farming land, the land sometimes would still produce crops. It would still produce some sort of harvest. And whatever it produced in the seventh year, the commandment of God in Exodus 23, 10-11 says, in the seventh year, whatever the land produced would not be the farmers, but it gives, you give that to the poor in the area. It's actually not even the first fruits, but it's an indication and a reminder for us that whatever is produced in the seventh year you give to the poor, it's an indicator say God is the God of compassionate and compassion of the poor, those who are underprivileged, those who are marginalized, those who are hurting. He's a compassionate God, and he says, my children should be like me. And it's a reminder for my children to be compassionate like me. I'm going to say, on the seventh year, you trust in me, and you can't farm that land. And whatever happens naturally, you take all that harvest and produce, and you give it out to the people who don't have any food. It's a reminder to say that his heart breaks for the poor and the hurting and the marginalized, and God's children should be just like him. There's perhaps nowhere more of a poignant parable of talking about the compassion of God than the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're not going to go into this, but you know the story if you've grown up in the church. You basically have the Good Samaritan was the only one after two guys walked by this person who was hurt on the road, and this parable talks about this one guy, the Samaritan, who goes to this person and helps this person and goes way above and beyond pays for the hotel room, 
pays for the ride, pays for the person to stay and get healthy, pays for the food. And he's radically generous and is basically saying that good Samaritan ultimately is Jesus Christ. Jesus who left his home and came down for you and me who were left dead in our sin on the side of the road. Jesus comes for you and me, people who are broken in our sin, in desperate need, unable to help ourselves, unable to fix ourselves, in desperate need of someone to save us. Jesus is that true good Samaritan that shows us the very personal compassion of God, a compassion of God that shows itself in practical needs. And that's why at this church, friends, one of the areas that we always need to pray about in terms of building a better culture is a culture of compassion not just for one another, but also just through our mercy ministry that we just partner with various nonprofit organizations. But more than partner with organizations to kind of give material needs and resources, which is absolutely necessary, we pray that the gospel will make us a compassionate people. And that's the ancient covenant for modern-day people, this covenant that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, these relationship between God and people like you and me, but we break this covenant in our sin. We're spiritual adulterers, we're sinful, we're selfish, we're always in need of grace and forgiveness, but the good news is that the mediator, the fulfillment of this covenant was Jesus Christ. Where you and I have failed, where Adam had failed in this covenant, our obligation is to do what God tells us to do. We fail every day of our lives, but the good news is we're not kicked out of the covenant because Jesus Christ fulfilled it. He secured it. He's a surety of the covenant. He's the fulfillment of the covenant. He's a mediator of the covenant. He's the testator of the covenant. He's the one that actually did what you and I couldn't do. He was merciful in a way that we couldn't be merciful. He was the one that honored God with the use of his time. He's the one that used everything to glorify God, even to the point of death. And when Jesus does this perfectly, he fulfills a covenant so that when you and I fail, we have grace to be forgiven and power to continue on. And this is the ancient covenant for modern people. And I pray as we close out this year that as we recommit ourselves as the people of God, sometimes going back to the basics is going to be the most important lesson that we learn, the most basic necessities of Christian life and a Christian commitment. And I pray that as we enter into this new year that we will be reminded of our obligations empowered by the gospel of a covenant people of God. Friends, let's turn to the Lord and pray at this time. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your Son. We pray that Jesus and him alone would receive all our worship, our commitment, our trust and faith, and that we would mix the demands of Christianity with the temptations of the world. We pray, Lord, that we would honor you on your day, on Sundays, which is the Lord's Day, with our time and our worship and our bodies and our thoughts and hearts. We also pray that you'd help us to be a deeply compassionate people, to be reminded that everything in this world is yours and you've given it to us, and that we steward it and that we manage it and that we use it in the way that you want it to be because you are the giver of all things and that you are the owner of all things. Lord, we love you with all hearts and pray that you would help the gospel to touch us deeply within our souls by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus Christ. Amen.